What's up, bingers? It's another snowy day here in Michigan, but today's guest is joining me from across the pond. He lives in a boat and hosts the incredibly intriguing podcast, Murder Mile. Please welcome Michael Buchanan Dunn. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Well, before we started recording, uh, Michael and I just discovered that that the town that I live in may be named after some of Michael's long lost relatives, who you say are criminals. <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I'm joined today by by Michael Buchanan Dunn, and I'm only uh, uh, repeating his name from the intro just because I was told that I was the first person ever in the history of the world to get his name right, and I want to brag about it a little bit. First person. Normally, I I know people who call me Buchanan Smith because they can't get the last bit right. Oh, right. how do they pronounce? <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do- I get I get Buchanan Dune. Okay. I get B- B- Buchanan Denis, and I'm just like I'm just like oh god, it's 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 a Scottish Irish name that's the two most popular names probably in the United Kingdom. We've bolted <laughs> them together. People always get it wrong, but. That's fine. I'm okay with it. They're overthinking it. <laughs> but you got it absolutely right. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I as I told you, I have some, uh, I had some help. But, you know, my <laughs> producer's name is Michael. I live in Buchanan, and uh, and also I'm Scottish. So you know, the Dunn just it just it came right off, rolled right off the tongue. We could be related. We might be. We might be. I'm a Robertson. Are you related to any Robertsons? Ah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't bothered to check. <laughs> Michael, I can tell you that I can I could listen to your voice all day long. I was I was I was, as I was getting ready to to join our Zoom here to start recording. I've been listening to some of your episodes. And I was like, I don't know what he's going to sound like because your your podcast <laughs> is like it, you sound just like this, but it's like this this perfectly narrated almost audio drama type feel. And so I was like, I can't imagine what this what this guy sounds like if he's just chatting, but you kind of sound the same. Yeah, I, I think I, I over time I've realized I have to have a podcast voice. Right. <laughs> um so so when people meet me in real life they go, You don't sound like you. And I'm like, mm, sorry about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is this is what I sound like when I don't have a microphone and uh well, well tell me uh tell me about your yourself, Michael. I mean I I know so the prem- the podcast is called Murder Mile. The premise of the podcast is that you're essentially doing kind of what you do for a living, right? That you're taking people on these like murder walks through the streets of London and other in other places. So I, I'm 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 gonna throw it to you. You you tell me what it is that you do and how it got turned into a podcast. Uh, it's it started with a weird idea in my head. I always thought to myself, when you walk down a street. How many murders are on that street? And I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe there's a handful, maybe there's a few, you know, 
So I started researching and I, I deliberately, deliberately picked a very small part of, uh, West London, a part, in fact, it was just a couple of streets in Soho, which is, um, it's pretty much off Oxford Street and Piccadilly Circus. It's, it's the main area in kind of West London. Like anyone who comes to London knows it. Uh, I picked a handful of streets just because I knew them well. And I started researching really, really intensively to find every murder on every single street. And I was shocked. It, it turned into a tour. So what I started doing was guiding people around a couple of streets in Soho. And for two hours, we basically just point out all the murder locations. Um, but suddenly I realized there's so many murders. I have to turn it into a podcast just to, just to deal with all the cases. <laughs> there's so wow. many. There's th- that many, huh? Well, e- even at the moment. So the po- the tour has become uh, a podcast which is now turning into a book. So okay. what I'm having to do is focus on a single street. Uh, so this is just Old Compton Street, which is 974 feet long. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For the um, conversion to uh, out of metric? Oh, I think it's like 200 and, I think it's 234 f- meters. Meters. Well, I, yeah, you, the, you're doing the math for me helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's only because I think I looked at it today, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was lucky. Um, and there's just so many murders uh, on, on the same street, in the same building, the same people crop up again and again. So what I really, really wanted to do with the podcast was try and create not just a world where you're exploring murders, but these characters, these real people, quite often they crop up again and again. Same people, same cases, their lives change. It's, it's baffling. It's interesting. It's, and you can see the idea was as well to look at one street and you go, okay, well, it's a quite a posh street this week, but you know, 20 years later, it's, it's taken a real tumble. It's a dive. It's one of the worst areas in London. And then a hundred years later, it's this building that used to have 30 people living in there. Now all of a sudden it's worth four million pounds and you go, how did that happen? So I think I just wanted to create something that was murder related, bit of history, combine it together, make, just make it in, entirely different and interesting. Oh, it's, it, it's, it's a fascinating podcast. And you, so in, in your background, you, so you were a, a professional program maker. Is that like a producer? You worked for BBC, right? Yeah, I used to, I used to work in development. So getting, helping people get, uh, comedy projects off the ground. And I spent a lot of time kind of editing scripts and things like that. Uh, but inside of me was always this burning ambition to write. Uh, I used to take plays to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which happens every August. Mm-hmm. And I'd put on these one man plays that no one came to see. Uh, <laughs> which some, some days I'd get a standing ovation the next day. Literally, I had 98% of the audience walk out. And I was like, this is fascinating. But I, wow. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, and doing the tour and podcasting is just, for anyone who wants to write, I always give this piece of advice, which is to set deadlines. And being a podcaster is a perfect way to do it because it just, it forces you to have to write a script. It forces you to learn editing and production skills and, uh, even for someone like me who's a dyslexic, do you know, it's, it's helped with my dyslexia. Um, and it's, it even helped with my stutter as well. I used to have a really bad stutter and now it's, now it's not too bad. <laughs> well, that's, inc- that's incredible. I never would have 
thought of either one of those things. I mean, based on the fact that you're the one writing these podcasts and the, the playwright, but, but so, so you, if you, did your stutter go into your adult life too, or is it something you kind of got control of when you were younger? No, I think it was it was based around the dyslexia. So I I found I think one of my teachers worked out I was dyslexic when I was about seventeen. Mm-hmm. I didn't know this, but I I could tell by the way he was teaching that I was I was struggling with words, and he he could see that. Um, so I kind I kind of stayed away from being a writer for many years because I was like, well, I, I can't be a writer if I'm dyslexic. Even though Ben Elton, the the playwright and novelist, mm-hmm. is massively dyslexic. To the point where people would get his scripts and go, I can't read it, but I know that it's funny because he's, <laughs> he's just such a talent. So, um, yeah, over the years, I just, I, I forced myself into writing. The first episode of Murder Mile took me, uh, it's only half an hour long, but it took me almost a day to pronounce all the words to go into it. Oh, and wow. then another three days to edit it because I, I, I couldn't pronounce each word. Uh, which is why it sounds disjointed. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I reread that script recently and it took me half, like literally half an hour. So over the last four years, it's really helped my dyslexia really well. So, Well, that, that's super interesting. For anyone who is a dyslexic, I would just say focus on reading and performing and it will really help you. Yeah, because you, I mean, and you've done this so many, I think the episode I was listening to this morning was was it episode like number one hundred and fifty eight something like that. You've done a lot of these these podcasts. Oh right, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I, I think when I started, I, I hoped that I could do five. <laughs> I think, I think with podcasters, I, th- I think it, the average is seven, isn't it? I don't know what the average is, but I know there's an awful lot that uh, get started and make it, yeah, make it a few months and mm-hmm. then decide to hang it up. They, they they think they're going to be major celebrities within six seconds. Yeah, but uh, pe- but people underestimate how hard it is to really establish an audience and how long it takes. Oh, absolutely! It takes up so much time. But I I love it. I love writing. I do a, an episode every single week. I think you're right. I'm up to episode one five eight, but in total, there's about two hundred and ten. Um, and I've just finished the research for the next year's worth of podcasts as well. So. Uh, for people who love true crime stories, this is the place to come. It's 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 cases that you will never have heard anywhere else. Because I like to go into the archives, the national archives, pull out police files. What I love to do is not know too much about the case, because then when you open up the, the this is the original police file or, or the court records, mm-hmm. and when you open it up, it's it's old, it's tatty, it's in a mess, uh, it's it's in no order. So you open it up and. It's like someone's given you a novel, but the novel has no page numbers and they've dropped it on the floor. Mm-hmm. So you've got to look at it and go, right, where do I start? You start with that page and it goes, uh, Susan found a handbag in the Red Lion pub on Tuesday. And you go, right, is the Red Lion pub important? Is Tuesday important? What does the handbag mean? And it means nothing. But it's only when you start going through the file that suddenly all these pieces come together and you start exploring a story, and I, I just absolutely love it. Love it. Well, it, your production style is, is quite unique, and and I love it. It reminds me of of like the old audio dramas where there's you know there's sound effects and there's there's period music even it seems like and sound effects that come along with uh, 
your your storytelling where did that format come from and and who do you do all the editing work yourself or do you have someone that helps with putting all this together yeah no all all of it's me i write produce edit everything i think it started at the edinburgh fringe um and it started by a mistake so this was over this 12 years ago i was putting on a play couldn't afford to hire actors couldn't afford to build a set couldn't afford to do uh, music or anything like that. Uh, so I built a soundscape and the idea was I would perform to the soundscape. So the soundscape had music and sounds and mm-hmm. it was an hour of a beautiful, uh, kind of audio performance, but you had, you had to be pin sharp with it. You had to get every beat right. Otherwise the play would collapse. And my friend who's an actor came and watched it and he said, it was wonderful. I loved it, but you're an idiot. It's like, you don't do that. You don't, you, you, you hire actors, you hire lighting. I did the lighting from the stage as well. So wow. it was a crash course in learning to do everything myself. And uh, when I started podcasting, it just made perfect sense. I knew how to edit sounds. I knew I wanted to create not something that was, I wanted to create a kind of an audio kind of an immersive kind of uh, emotional experience. So when you listen to it, you're not just entering the world, but I, I kind of, I'm trying to help you understand how I want you to feel at that moment of how the victim feels, how, the, how the, maybe even the killer feels. So, yeah, I love it. Oh, God, it's exciting. <laughs> oh, it is. It was, I mean, I was, I was pleasantly surprised when, when I started listening to it. I thought, this is, this is just fantastic. It, it is. It's very, it's, it's very, I think immersive is a good word for it that you just you feel like you're right there with the with the storytelling and all the and, and everything and, and plus the cases are so I, I'm I'm stunned that there are so many interesting cases all right there in that same little geographic area. I'm I agree with you. When I started, I didn't think there'd be that much, and every year when I start doing the podcast, I I I, I draw up my list of cases to start researching, and I always say. Oh, please let it be something good. Or please let there be enough. Cause <laughs> when I started, every single case seemed to be drunk men in a pub having a fight over a pound or a girl. And you just go, Oh God, you're idiots. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the deeper I've gone into it and the, uh, I found new ways of researching now and it's, it's fantastic. I can kind I, I kind of find. One week I'll find a case that's really sad and tragic. The next week I can find something uh, riveting. There's serial killer cases, there's spree killers, there's terrorism. And you just think there can't be this much going on 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 a single street or on a couple of streets, but there is. And uh, I'm still exploring new cases today. Wow, that's it's amazing. And now, do you still do the uh, the tour? Do you still go out and do the Murder Mile walking tours, or is it just all the podcasts now? Um, I'm, I've taken a slight break from the tour only because it, I'll be honest, I was only meant to do one tour for one day. It was really oh. just an experiment just to see if I could do it. Mm-hmm. And people liked it. So I, uh, seven years later, I was still doing it. <laughs> oh, wow. So you did it for seven years? Yeah. So I've literally just finished about, about two weeks ago, I finished the last one, but I've started a, a new one, which starts this year, which is, because I've realized there's so many cases, I can literally walk into West London and people can say, what's the nearest murder to here? And I can go, right, that building there, that building there. So, and everything's in my head. So the new tour is three hours walking around the West End, 
uh, people can say, let's go left, and I'll head left, and there'll be cases we can cover. So I'm looking forward to that. That's amazing. So what is what is family life like for you? Are, are you are you a single guy? Do you have a partner? How you just it's, non-existent? It seems, non-existent. <laughs> well, to be honest, I was I was trying to figure out how you could possibly balance it. You 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 with the amount of work that you do. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I I love working. I love writing. It's it's kind of my go-to thing. Um, luckily, I I am single. I changed my life many years ago. Thankfully, the BBC made me redundant, which was lovely. <laughs> they paid me to leave, and I was like, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. So I bought a little canal boat, um, and I live on a on a li- little fifty foot long, six feet wide boat. So it's probably about as wide as a human, and probably as long as probably eight humans. Uh, and I just chug along wow. the the London waterways, and this is my office and my home. That's amazing. So, so you're on a boat right now. That's your that's your home. Yeah, I've tried to I've tried to moor up somewhere that's a little bit quiet, uh, just so this recording could go well. Because a lot of my listeners uh, know that sometimes in the morning when I'm recording, the ducks will be outside making like horrible cracking noises, or a train will go past, <laughs> or. Or, or sometimes the swans will come to the window and they'll start tapping on the window for their breakfast. So it's a, <laughs> it, it can be a fr- frustrating place to record, but really enjoyable. That, wow, that's incredible. So how long have you lived on the, on the boat? Uh, almost eight years now. And it's lovely. It's, for me, it's nice. It's a little cozy little place. I've got a little, uh, uh, log and, uh, coal fire. It's, the only problem is there's no uh, mains power. So before we before we started this conversation, I had to run down to a coffee shop to charge up my laptop to make sure I had enough power so we could record this. <laughs> that wow! So there's no power on the boat at all. Um, I've I've got uh, an engine and a generator, but it, they're, they're quite noisy. So uh, yeah, right. there, there's living on the boat. You have to make a lot of sacrifices. I moved from a, a nice flat, and I got rid of. Everything except one suitcase, which basically contained some clothes and about 10 books. And uh, I moved onto the boat, and it's been the best decision I ever made. Well, I was going to ask you, do you ever have, have thoughts of, of moving back onto land, or are you just enjoying the way your life is going right now? I love it. It's, it's nice because it's um, what I realized living in a flat was um, I had a very nice apartment and had two neighbors either side. Mm-hmm. And in the eight years I lived there, I never knew them. Whereas on a boat, because sometimes you have to literally live side by side with people or, or uh, what we call double breasting, which is basically um, the side of my boat is against the side of your boat. So sometimes I can open my kitchen window and you will be barely a foot away, what, like um, <laughs> doing your washing up or making your breakfast. So uh, you have to become really good friends with local people. And do you know, if you don't like them, you just move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I, I'm going to be very forward and invite myself to come visit you on your boat if I'm ever in, Lo- in London again, because I would, I would love to see this if you're open Please for do. company. That'd be great. Yeah, it just it sounds, it sounds just fascinating to me and, and, and cozy and scary and everything all at the same time. It, it, yeah, it can be interesting. I, I, I had an interesting moment a couple of... Years ago, I was listening to a, a true crime podcast and I was in that kind of moment where 
Um, I was dozing and you, you don't think you're asleep, but you are, you're close to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it was a podcast about the, uh, the East area rapist. And it was quite a hor- horrifying, uh, episode. And we'd had a couple of break-ins on the waterway recently. Uh, so I was, I was already quite heightened anyway. And the boat rocked as it sometimes does. Cause it's very, it's very thin. So it has a tendency mm-hmm. to rock, especially in the wind. And I thought someone was running across the roof on my boat. So I, I grabbed my axe and I ran outside <laughs> and I was screaming along the, the towpath with my axe in my hand, trying to scare these people away. And then I realized no one was there. <laughs> it was just me in my underpants holding an axe. <laughs> I, I wonder if anybody saw that, saw that go down. Uh, someone did, unfortunately, a couple of weeks later when um, <laughs> I heard the same sound. It was a hot day, so I was lying in bed, pants on, as always. Uh, and I heard banging from outside. I didn't know what it was, and I came outside, and there was a man crouched down near the front of my boat where, where my bar- bike is, and he was making banging sounds. And because I'm, I wear very thick contact lenses, I couldn't see him at all in the dark. Mm. And I went, I screamed at him, I went, what are you doing? And he, he said, oh, mate, I want the bike. And I went, what? And he said, I want the bike, and it inflamed me. I was like, he, he's brazenly admitting that he wants to break into my boat and steal my bike. Uh-huh. And I, I, I literally ran up to him. I had my axe in my hand. I wasn't going to use it. I just wanted to scare him off. And I realized he'd cycled along the towpath drunk. He'd, his bike had bounced across my boat. He'd fallen into the canal with the bike, <laughs> and he was trying to pull the bike out of the water, but my boat was in the way. Uh, and I started crying and he said, I'm sorry, mate. My dad died today and we've just buried him. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Good Lord. Well, you got some, some pretty interesting experiences living on the, living in the canal, I guess. Yeah. I mean, most days it's boring, but that was exciting. (laughs) 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 Well, speaking of interesting experiences, let's shift on to talking about the case that we're going to cover today. And, and this is, uh, this guy's known as the Blackout Ripper. And that's because this was, this was, am I right? This was during World War II, right? During the blackouts of, uh, World War II. Yeah. Britain had basically just gone through about 150 days of blitz. Mm-hmm. So this was, uh, February 1942. Uh, Hitler's idea was basically to bomb the, uh, the United Kingdom into submission with basically just nonstop bombardment of bombings day and night. Uh, it failed massively. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he'd forgotten about how stubborn British people are. <laughs> we, right, yeah. we, we really are a stubborn race. And, uh, I think he wanted us to be terrified. And what we realized was, I think people realize that if your neighbor gets blown up, you don't get scared. You have a feeling of invincibility. You're like, well, it's not going to happen to me. So people just went about their lives. Mm-hmm. So the blackout ripper. Uh, his killing spree was across four days, uh, in the second week of February, 1942, when Britain was in blackout. Uh, you couldn't have your lights on at night. Your doors were closed. Your windows had to be screened with, uh, blacking cloth. If you were to torch, it had to be a uh, quite a low beam one. You couldn't shine it at the sky. Um, the rules were incredibly strict on keeping the city as dark as possible to make sure that the bombers couldn't find the city. Oh wow! I guess I never really realized what the the purpose of the blackouts were. So it was it was intentional. It was a defense mechanism. 
Yeah, uh, even the uh, clock face of Big Ben, uh, you could still hear the ringing of the bell of Big Ben, but the, the clock face was deliberately deluminated so no one could see, uh, which is why often you'll see cars driving along during World War II and their, their headlights are really, really heavily dipped. And uh, yeah, if you open your door and you'd left a light on, an air raid ward- warden would come out and he'd scream at you and go, what are you doing? Turn off your lights. <laughs> oh, wow. And so, and it, it, so it's during this time, during these blackouts, that uh, the the guy's name is Gordon Frederick Cummins, uh, goes on a killing spree. If you want to share 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 his story, yeah, he's become a a bit of a specialist subject for me. I kind of started with him on on the walk, and I was excited to find that there was a spree killer in Soho, so on the streets that I work on on the tours, um. And as I researched his case, his case files only really became available about 15 years ago. And I, I thought, wow, there's, it, there's enough here to really dive into 10 episodes at least. Um, so he came to London. He was uh, training to be a fighter pilot over at Regent's Park. Um, across four days, he brutally attacked four women. Um, and this is not just beating them up he would uh, um, knock them unconscious with a fist he would strangle them either with his hand or with a ligature uh, and then he would proceed to mutilate them uh, quite often in their rooms using whatever uh, weapons he could find lying around so he never came prepared it's almost as if he never really thought about murder so he doesn't seem to be a, a maniac but he seems to click he seems to have a moment where he just thinks I need to not only torture, because his idea would be he'd get a lady, he'd take her to the point where she's not quite dead. So she's almost dead, but she's still conscious. She can still see him, but she's immobile. Uh, and then he would slowly use knives to kind of uh, cut them, pose them. He would deliberately pose the body. So when someone walked into the room, the first thing they would see is obviously the lady dead, bloody, mutilated, normally with her legs apart facing the door he but this is what i find fascinating about him is everyone says he's a sadist but i don't think he is i think i think he wants to be a sadist i think i think he likes the attention and he's desperate to become something almost like a new jack the ripper but it never happened for him because world war ii was happening everyone had more important things to deal with the press never picked up on it. They, if you look at the newspapers of, of the era, um, you would expect this to be page one. You'd expect this to be front page all the way, but it isn't. There's like tiny articles on page 10 saying woman murdered on, on Wardour Street. It went to court. It lasted half an hour. He was executed. He never gave a confession. And basically the files were almost forgotten until about 15 years ago. So it's a, it's a really unusual case, but I suspect he's murdered more than four women. Well, there was a, there was at least one or two, um, attempts that he made were, were he wasn't able to succeed in the, in the murders, right? There was, didn't one of the, cause these, these, most of his, was it, were all of his victims or just a majority of them were sex workers? Uh, the majority were, but I think. That's because uh, he needed women who were alone at certain points. One of them was a pharmacist. One of them was uh, 
a lady, we don't know her job, but she was a divorcee waiting for a date. Um, but this is what's interesting about him. So you would expect someone who's committed those kind of acts, those kind of really horrible, brutal, demeaning, humiliating acts on these women. You'd expect this to be a person who's full of hatred, uh, someone who, who, who can't hold down a regular job, who, uh, is just full of rage all the time, but he's not. And this is what's fascinating is he, he holds down a full time job. He's got friends. He goes out every evening. Um, he's married. His wife is expecting a baby. He's thinking about the future because he's training to be a, a Spitfire pilot. And he goes out to these clubs and he meets various women and he has sex with uh, different prostitutes. He's obviously got a high libido, but as, as we kind of learn later on, uh, he, uh, he quite often suffers with erectile dysfunction, which seems to be his trigger mechanism. Um, but some women he will have sex with that night or attempt to have sex with, and they will say he's the perfect gentleman. In fact, one lady who he picks up called Laura Denmark, this is just before his second murder. Um, he goes into her, her flat just off Old Compton Street. Uh, they sit there about to have sex. Um, he's unable to uh, perform. Uh, and she goes, that's not a problem, mate. Uh, I tell you what, we'll have a cup of tea. Uh, we'll sit down in front of the fire. We'll have a, a chat. And he's sitting there, uh, talking to the sex worker about his wife and his career and his child who's on the way. And she says he's really lovely and, you know, they get on really well. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to work out how to say this next bit. Okay. <laughs> Basically, he, he likes her hair. He becomes aroused. He finishes himself off. I think, I think that's a nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> and th- because he's done, he pays her, uh, extra money. He walks her back to Piccadilly Circus where he picked her up because he's worried about her safety during the blackout. And she says he's an absolute gentleman. He said she's, she wishes all clients were like him. And yet later that night, he would brutally murder Evelyn Oakley, a sex worker just around the corner, in the most humiliating, horrific way possible. So he's baffling. He really is. He's not. He, you would expect a maniac, but he's not. He's especially someone on, on a four day killing spree. And this is four murders and then two attempted murders. And I suspect there's other murders and other attacks in there as well. You would expect a maniac, but he seems to be as calm and controlled as, as possibly any of the most more prolific serial killers out there. Seeing the sex worker in between two murders without incident is, man, what a, what a, I'm sure there are, there are criminal behavior analysts that would be, that would be dying to be able to interview this guy back before they, before he was executed. To figure out what was going on in his head. I mean, the, he never takes weapons with him. Nope. Not a single weapon. Yeah. The, he, he strangles, beats, mutilates, goes out with another one, has, uh, has the ED problem, still has a nice night with her, walks her home and goes, picks up another one and kills her. Like what, was there anything yeah. with the, with the victims that was like consistent where they, they all have the same color hair? Did they all, was there anything like that or they seem just random? Weirdly, with the, with the blackout ripper, I, sp- I spent years going through this and trying to find, cause I thought to myself, do you know, people like Ted Bundy, I think they say that a lot of, a lot of his victims are kind of, and they look like an ex-girlfriend. Right. Or with 
British serial Dennis Nielsen. Uh, a lot of his victims uh, kind of look like Twinkle, his early boyfriend. Or he would he would make when they're dead, he would make them and shape them mm-hmm. into looking like his ex boyfriend. But Gordon Frederick Cummings doesn't have a type. They're all different ages, different sizes, different backgrounds. There's there's nothing that connects them except that when he met them, they were by themselves. But he's he has no problem with uh with with one the victim that ultimately led to him uh being arrested. He met her on Piccadilly Circus. She was waiting for her boyfriend to turn up. She was an hour early and he said, well, if you fancy, I'll take you out for a drink for an hour just to keep you busy. And then I'll bring you back here at nine o'clock when your boyfriend turns up. And she went, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Um, so they went out, they had a drink. Um, he told, he was in his RAF uniform. Um, he told her his name. He told her all about his life. He he was honest about absolutely everything in his life, and you just think, why this this is not a, this is not a murderer, this is not a serial killer, but he is, and somehow he can, somehow he can go from so normal to just snapping. But when he snaps, it's it's not like he becomes an instant maniac and he can't control himself because on the second killing, the one I was just mentioning about uh, where he. He met with Laura Denmark, the sex worker, and then he met the other prostitute who he brutally murdered. Um, she was living in a cheap flat. And in order to make the, make the flat even cheaper, her landlord had basically put a partition wall between her and her friend. So but th- through a wall that was probably only about an inch wide uh, was another lady who was sleeping, and she didn't hear the murder take place. And it just makes you think, how controlled is he? How it's bizarre. I can't describe him. <laughs> how did uh, I really want? I real quick want to run through the victims to give people an idea of kind of the 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 range there. So his his first victim is is Maple Churchyard, who was only nineteen years old. And we have Edith Eleanor Eleanor. Are they, I don't are, are, I don't know if these are in order or not. But well, interesting. So um, the what they would say is the canonical, uh, the ones that he definitely, we know he, uh, murdered was, uh, Evelyn Hamilton, who was a 41 year old pharmacist. Mm-hmm. She just got made redundant. Uh, she went to a, a cafe on her birthday and she sat there by herself and she had a little meal. Um, and it appears that he may have met her then, uh, and then murdered her in an air raid shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one was the next night, Evelyn Oatley. Uh, she was a sex worker. She wanted to be an actress, but she wasn't kind of working. She was more of an ex- escort girl. Uh, he met her in Piccadilly Circus, went back to her flat, brutally murdered her. Uh, she was found the next morning by basically a guy who was coming to read the gas meter. The third one, uh, was Margaret Florence Lowe. Uh, she was another sex worker. She wasn't found for two days, which tells you a lot. I know people say that, you know, remember the good old days? And everybody knew each other and you could leave your door open. It's lies. It's, I, she was found five days later. The door was locked. Her daughter came in, found her and was almost sick looking at her. Uh, fourth one next day after that, Doris June, again, another sex worker. She kept it secret from her husband. Um, he had attempted to m- murder another lady called, uh, Catherine Mulcahy round the corner. 
She tried to strangle her. She managed to scream. Her neighbor came in and went, what are you doing? He basically went, oh, don't worry about it. He lit a cigarette. He put his trousers back on. Uh, he walked away as if nothing had happened. He walked around the corner and murdered Doris June. Um, so the, the, the ones that you mentioned, uh, Mabel Church and Edith Humphreys, they're the, they're the ones that the police believe he may have committed, uh, but he might not have done. And this is what makes him fascinating is that he, he did a four day killing spree where he killed four women and attempted to kill two others. I don't think anyone would just start. I don't think you would wake up in the morning and, you know, yawn and have your breakfast and go, today, I think I'm going to start a killing spree. Right. There has to be something. So, uh, so, uh, Mabel Church, she was murdered, um, about four months earlier, about half a mile north of where most of these murders happened. Um, a single young lady, she was walking back from town. She was found in an abandoned house. She'd been posed. She was half naked. Her legs were splayed. She'd been punched in the head to make her unconscious. She'd been strangled. Um, but he hadn't mutilated her, which is why the police are kind of dubious about whether he did commit this murder or not. Uh, it was never solved. But with some of his victims, he didn't get a chance to mutilate them. So maybe he was disturbed. Uh, the second one, Edith Humphreys, again, a, a lady in Regent's Park, about half a mile from uh, Mabel, uh, five days later, um, she was beaten, she was strangled. Um, he'd stabbed her in the head. So basically the knife had penetrated her brain, and when mm. the police turned up about six or seven hours later, they were alerted to the sound of a dog that she was looking after barking in, in a cupboard, and when they went in, they, they saw basically what was a bloodbath, and it was absolutely horrific, but she was still alive. Six hours later, she was still alive, having been stabbed in the head. Uh, unfortunately, she died in hospital later that day in surgery, and she was never able to um, give a description of her attacker. So, uh, it's, I think he committed four murders plus two attempted murders, and I think he may have committed these two earlier ones as well, but we just don't know. And so he was the, the only one he was convicted of was Evelyn Oatley's murder yeah they 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 had to do it as a specimen charge so um which is uh they, they had a choice of either going to court and saying we we can convict you of these four murders which is a risk which kind of is risky because he could be found guilty of one murder and not all of them so they used a specimen charge which meant uh if we find him guilty of evelyn oatley he's guilty of all of them and that was his fingerprints were everywhere his fingerprints were on weapons. He touched everything. He had, he had drinks with, with the victims. He rifled through their handbags. He stole items from each of these ladies, not only as weird souvenirs that he kept for himself, but also he had, even though he was married and his wife had a baby on the way, he had a lot of girlfriends. So he would steal items from his victims to give to his other girlfriends almost like a weird kind of sadistic gift. He's weird. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So he was, he, he was convicted. They sentenced him to death and hanged him. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in 1942 now. So I, I'm assuming that he was hanged not long after his conviction. It's not like today where you have years of appeals. 
No, I mean, he, he was arrested on the 13th of February. He were, he went to trial 24th of April, uh, and he died 25th of June. So it was literally a couple of months later. His, his family put in an appeal. Um, they went to the appeal court and they said, this isn't like Gordon at all. Gordon's a really lovely guy. He's, he's nice. He's polite. Yeah. He's a little bit of a liar. I think that's the worst anyone who knew him could say about him was, mm-hmm. He liked to believe that he, people called him the Count because he liked to say that he was from kind of uh, an aristocratic family, which was lies. And he mm-hmm. said that he was well educated, which was lies. Uh, so the, he stole a couple of things. Do you know, he would steal money every so often, but no one ever said that he was a bad man. No one said that they ever saw him. I've, I've been researching his past and the worst I can find is that sometimes he stole handbags. And obviously he's stealing handbags to give to his other girlfriends, but there's no history of violence in his past. There's no history of rape that I can find. He doesn't, do you know with a lot of serial killers, they tend to say he, he's either a bedwetter or a fire starter or cruel to animals. None of that. There's nothing in his past. He's, he just seems to be a liar with sticky fingers. Wow. Well, that's, you know, a lot of times is the mark of a true sociopath you that's that's what you always hear mm. is you know oh he was he was charming he was nice he i can't i can't believe that he would do something like this uh but obviously he was he was an awful awful human being uh we know now where can people find in your in your catalog of episodes where can they find the full the full story of the blackout ripper or gordon frederick cummins oh yeah so uh i i did a eight-part series called the blackout ripper which is, I think it's episodes 27 to 35 or something. And a- as you just mentioned, the latest episodes, 157 and 158, is the, the earlier cases, which I'm, I, th- I think he may have committed. The, these have taken me years to kind of dive into, and I'm, I'm just, God, I really shouldn't do this. I'm literally diving into his past oh, wow. to work out wh- where he has been in his life and to find any cases that have similarities to what I know his MO is. It's never been done before. I think it's going to take me a couple of years. But I, d- don't you think it's worth it, isn't it? I do. I, I would not be shocked at all to find that there was, you know, usually you see some kind of escalation. I bet, I bet if you're able to dig deep enough, you'll find more that at least look like they fit the same MO as him. And for you listeners, you can follow along that right. You can go back and listen to the Blackout Ripper series. He, uh, Michael has, uh, by the time you hear this, probably 160 episodes to go through. <laughs> they're fantastic. They're, they're, they're amazingly produced. Uh, they're, they will definitely be fascinated. His name is Michael Buchanan Dunn. The podcast is called The Murder Mile. Check it out. It just might be your next true crime binge. Thank you, Michael, so much for taking the time to join me. And, uh, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pop him by that boat next time I'm in London. You're more than welcome. I look forward to seeing you here. (laughs) All right, great. Thanks so much, Michael. Cheers. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. 
Our website, truecrimebinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of createdintandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.